Hello everybody, this is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 211. So glad you could join me. We have a special guest tonight, Penny Harder is here. She's a wonderful poet in person. We'll be with her in about 10 minutes. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle's a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been a continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this. We love poetry, and I know you do too, so please do click the like button and share. And make sure you're subscribed. Ring the bell for notifications. Leave reviews on iTunes. We're trying to drum up those. I realized that the iTunes ranking was kind of low, and it's because I didn't do the keywords right. I think I named the show now Rattle Poetry instead of the Rattle Cast, where it used to be the, we were, the uh, owner was called Rattle Poetry. I think the keyword might work better. Because if you type in poetry, it wasn't showing up really high. But now with more reviews and calling it just Rattle Poetry, I think that might work better. But do leave a review if you find it on iTunes later or Spotify or whatever else, wherever else you might be listening to it. Um, now, as always, we like to start with our uh, Poets Respond Poet. And it's a familiar face this week and a really interesting news article. Um, Alejandro Escudé is here. Uh, hey, Alex, how you doing? How are you? Good to, uh, good to be here. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to have you. Um, you know, it's been a bit, but we've been, uh, you know, you're one of those people who've been uh, in Poets Respond many times. Uh, it's close to the record. I'm not sure who has the record. I didn't count. But you're like right up there with maybe a dozen or so. And it's always a pleasure getting to read your poems, which you submit pretty much every week, which is like, an, it's just there's sort of a handful of people that submit poems every week that are always good. And it just makes my job so stress-free because I know no matter what happens, there's going to be a great poem. And, uh, and this was the Convict Game. Uh, which you, you had, and it was about this photograph. Tell us, uh, I'll show the, th- the photo on screen so people at home can watch or look along. But tell us what inspired this poem and why it came to be. Yeah, they, uh, they caught this convict, in, uh, ex- uh, you know, escape convict in Pennsylvania. And um, then there was this controversy about the fact that they took a group photo with the convict and, uh, when they caught him. And and it just struck me as something that was a little bit it was dehumanizing, uh, despite the fact that it's a killer. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I just I just think it's, you know, that I wanted to express what that kind of morality, you know, what goes into that decision uh, to do something like that or not to do it. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting topic to think about is that, you know, obviously, somebody who did such a horrible thing, I mean, talking about humanizing them, you know, feels kind of gross, I mean, to be frank, but there's still a way that by dehumanizing a human being, we become less human or something, too. And so it's this tricky situation. I mean, it did, it does look like I could show it on the screen again. It does look like a, uh, you know, like hunters, a group of hunters posing with a lion or something like how the poem starts. Yeah. That's what it made me think of, you know, just like those hunters who pose with, uh, you know, uh, go out to the Africa and pay people to take them out hunting. Um, and, you know, I just think that that's, you know, we can be we can do better than that uh, in terms of being professionals. Yeah. And it, it, it's a poem. Uh, it, it feels like one of those poems where which I always love, where you don't quite know like what you think. You know, you sort of started out and you figured itself out in the process of writing the poem. It, was that accurate to, to think? Yeah, yeah, because I often don't know. I think I think the the best poems I write about the news, I often don't know what to think. Mm-hmm. Um, I just start, and then some somehow it finds itself. Um, those are the ones that I think, even just in general poetry, uh, that's the best thing to do, um, because when you know, um, it comes out kind of uh, too one sided. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it shouldn't be too aware of itself. You yeah. know, because then there's no, you know, Robert Frost said no surprise in the, 
in the reader, no, no surprise in the writer, no surprise in the reader. So mm -hmm. it's kind of the same kind of idea. Yeah, I, I think uh, I like to think of a you know poetry isn't an essay; it's an exploration. You know, although a good essay is kind of an exploration too. So maybe that doesn't yeah. work. But it's the same kind of thing of you know trying to discover something in the process of writing is what really the the joy of writing and the and the meaning. That's where meaning comes from. Yeah, it's, I think it's a type of poem mm -hmm. because you can have other types. You know, you can have like, a, like for example, an epic poem knows exactly where it's going. You know, mm -hmm. so I I don't think you don't you always need to do that. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's let's hear it. This is Convict Game. Go ahead and read it. I'll put it on screen. And as everybody's you know watching along and reading, you can see how how you see Alex kind of searching. It's not a lion, um, and then and then just <laughs> sort of goes wherever the poem takes him. So let's hear it. Thank you. It the Convict Game. It's not a lion, the sun over the Serengeti, and the rifle has not saved the free world. The criminal is caught, yes, but do you, do you recall the human pyramids in Abu Ghraib? The shelter of the human world is the human world. One can't slice morality like a birthday cake, a piece for each officer. Dogs to the front, like Egyptian statues, their lean snouts having sniffed him out in the forests of Pennsylvania. I mean, the fugitive shot a mother in cold blood. But every single photograph is a bloody act. They belie the intrigue of the moment. Ghosts sometimes appear at the edge of them, some from the Civil War, bearded, from both North and South. This September, I thought of the World Trade Plains, the video of the first jet gutting the North Tower like a long silver fish. This murderer stood as the photo was taken, restrained by a trooper in fatigues. The first shot of him caught more like a war photo in heavy brush. Though he was no Che Guevara in Bolivia, waiting for his swift sentence, later he stands as if dead, suicide-like, while an officer, uniform-dressed, holds the phone up like a proud father at prom. There's no name for a dehumanizing act, despite the human animal that stands wrecked among a cadre of heroes. He's a mangy possum, a rat, a worm sliced in half, arrested, cut, self-mutilated, bruised. One can hear the dogs' nails clicking on the concrete when it's quiet enough for the snap. Yeah, and that was a convict game by Alejandro Day, Sunday's poem on Rattle. Alex, thanks. It's always a pleasure uh, having you on. Good to see you again. Thank you so much. Yep. Take, take care. care. Yeah, I'm saying Alejandro Day with Convict Game. And uh, if anybody has any poems you'd like to share for Poetry Spawn next week, the deadline always is Friday night at midnight, so you can write any poems about any topics that happened within a week that you sent them. That's how Poet Respond works, and the poem we pick gets aired on Sunday, and hopefully the uh, poet can join us on the Rattlecast. So now we're going to take a quick break and go to our main guest, Penny Harder. I'm really excited for this episode. Um, Penny Harder will be here in just a moment, so sit tight, and I'll be right back with more poetry. Poetry. 
And we're back. Like I said, today's guest is Penny Harder. Her most recent books are Keeping Time, Stillwater Days, and A Prayer the Body Makes. Earlier collections include Recycling Starlight, The Night Marsh, Buried in the Sky, Grandmother's Milk, Turtle Blessings, Lizard Light, Poems from the Earth, and Stages and Vows. So a whole bunch of books from Penny. Um, with her late husband, William Higginson, she co-authored the Haiku Handbook, which is one of the most important books um, of haiku ever written, really, uh, for understanding English language haiku. Um, and with him, she was co-editor of uh, From Here Press for many years. She's also the author of several chapbooks, including collections of haiku. Her awards include three poetry fellowships from the New Jersey State Council of the Arts, including the Arnold Gingrich Award, the Emily Dickinson Award from the Poetry Society of America, a Teaching Poet Award from the Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation, and two fellowships from the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts. She's here live uh, from New Jersey, and here she is, Penny Harder. Hey, Penny. Good to see you. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, it's really my pleasure. I, uh, I was at the, of course, um, the Haiku, the Na- or Haiku North America conference, and uh, got to, along with Katie Dozier, give the um, Higginson lecture, um, you know, in honor of your your late husband. Um, and it was really a wonderful thing to do. That's such a great community, and it was uh, too bad we couldn't see you there. But it's so great yeah, to have, have to, you now and, yeah, and get to know you. I had yeah. To cancel at the last minute because of some family problems, mm-hmm. and, uh, health challenges. But I'm here now and uh, meeting you. In person, almost. Yeah. Well, this is as you know, this is as good as uh, any other way too, because we get to really dig into uh, to your life and get to know more about you, which is great. Do you want to start mm-hmm. out by reading a poem? I shall. So we'll read Portal first. Yeah. Portal was a poem. There was a time when I was just picking a word, and then seeing where it led me. And Portal was one of those words. A short passage to another room. Let's see. Definition. Once. A strange door hidden in a wall came out on wheels to divide one room from another. I don't remember that it closed off grandmother's dining room from the living, yet it does so now, emerging from its cavern like a fall of water between me and that table set with stone utensils on white linen. No, not stone, only seeming so as I reached through to lift them. Lost in the estate sale, that green glass globe my mother loved. As we advance in any air, we enter something other, layers shimmering as we pass. Sometimes strands will brush our cheeks as we move from here to there, from now to a time we don't remember, from one world to the next through the wormhole that awaits us. Buried in sand, my feet emerge again grains falling one by one yeah and that was penny harder's poem portal from her newest book yeah keeping time um hyben for the journey and uh and penny so so tell us about the hyben form for people who aren't familiar with it um you know what how how do you how would you describe the hyben form and um and and what are the components and, and why are you drawn to it well for the longest time, I wrote just free verse and occasionally a rhyming poem for, for some years. Um, when I met Bill, I got hooked into haiku and was going to the Haiku Society in New York. But I really wasn't that familiar with Haibun at that time. Of course, I learned more about it in the working on the haiku handbook. But basically, it is originally it was to depict a journey, a basho, a journey to the far north. And it's come to be a journey of many kinds. It can be a geographical journey. 
It can be an internal journey. It can be a journey of discovery, as you referred to earlier, discovery. Um, it can, from, and from my point of view, it can even be a fantasy or some mix. But it does have to go take you somewhere. And uh, self-realization or some kind of destination. And the, so it's prose, prose poem almost, actually, um, blocks with haiku, which can be inserted before, after, anywhere in the middle. It's up to the writer to decide, and the challenge is to find an appropriate haiku to go with what you're saying that does not continue the narrative directly. Mm -hmm. But I've often likened it to throwing a pebble into a pond, and then there are the ripples. Uh. It, it, it relates in terms of theme, it relates in terms of mood, um, but it shouldn't be direct narrative. Once in a while I fall off a little bit in that direction, but mostly I, I try to do the former and let it relate. So that was the loss in the estate sale, that green glass globe my mother loved, linked to the memory of my grandmother's dining room. However, the, the door hidden in the wall was actually in Bill's and my apartment. <laughs> it was an old apartment. Mm -hmm. um, and the same with the sand. I went through the wormhole, came out the other side, <laughs> grains falling one by one. Mm -hmm. So I love the highbone form because of its challenge. Um, and as I sent you, I don't know whether we'll get to it later, but there are times when I've taken a, a narrative poem or a free verse poem that didn't quite work for me and recast it into Highland. Changed it somewhat in the doing and uh, found that it worked better for me. Mm -hmm. And, what and is I like the... haiku better in this context. Mm -hmm. you, you say you like haiku better in the context? Uh, well, I like haiku, but I tend to write more of them this mm -hmm. way than as standalone. Yeah, and it's really nice. I think one of the things I was thinking about reading the book actually was um, you know, talking to Richard Gilbert, who was one of the first guests on the Rattlecast about the way that um, you know in, in traditional Japanese poetry, the the biography of the poets, and, and with Gendai, the modern haiku too, the biography of the poets often plays into the haiku, where we have in you know in the Western canon we have this idea of like the death of the author. And, and mm -hmm. it's not as much known. And so, you know, for a lot of great haiku, you need to know some about the poet, you know, his life to really appreciate it. And so it seems to me, reading through these, a way of sort of expanding on the haiku, too, and making it, like, more understandable, sort of contextualized, even, even though it's a leap between the two, it sort of gives the haiku something to push off, which is, you know, haiku standing alone on the page has no context whatsoever. Whereas with prose surrounding it, we get a whole bunch, even though it's, it's a sort of one removed sort of a cut itself between the haiku and the prose. A leap. Yeah. Mm -hmm. well, of course, the haiku alone on the page is also its own little universe. Mm -hmm. but yeah. I agree with you. That's a nice way of putting it. Um, and a lot of the poems in this book, well, in the preface, I talk about the first two sections are poems written before the lockdown, and then the final section is after. But a lot of them are uh, memory, auto autobiographical, and that's okay. Those are my journeys. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, and it's interesting, too, I, I think, as, as far as I understand it, that, um, you know, in Japan, you know, haibun isn't a really popular form, and so it's sort of a you know, in English is we can't sort of, uh, you know, do haiku as, as well as Japanese does because we don't have the whole books of season words and all that history to play yeah. with. Um, you know, it's a way to contextualize and, and sort of make, you know, for English haiku um, in an interesting way. And that sort of haibun really is a blossoming form. You see haibun all over the place. We, you know, since doing the Japanese forms um, issue of Rattle, 
uh, which we published a few hymen, we get hymen all the time. And, you know, every issue almost uh, includes a hybrid or two, whereas we don't get as many submissions for a haiku. And so it may be a way to bridge to the gap between sort of traditional poetry, if you can call it that, and um, in the haiku community. Yeah. And at the very end of my book, I have a page, um, tips for writing haiku. So if anyone is interested enough to want the book, there are eight tips there. It starts out a haiban is not a short story. It relates the journey mm-hmm. um, from there. Yeah. Um, well, let's hear, uh, let's hear another one. Uh, which one do you want to do next? Well, I'll do um, Night Howls. I'll do Night Howls. Okay. I don't know. My, my computer is beeping, I guess. Well, everything's I, fine, so it's okay. I can't even hear yeah. it either. Oh, good. Um, this one, actually, you, you published in Rattle. And I like it because, well, this, the section that it is in um, are not necessarily pretty. You know, mm-hmm. the one before that is about a spider and jellyfish tied and people cursing. And and this one, Night Howls, was an actual experience from Santa Fe when Bill and I lived there for 11 years. Um, we had a track, railroad track and some sort of wasteland behind the house. And there was sort of a, a gully and then houses. Night Howls. When the drunk neighbor across the tracks beats his dog again. The primal howling jerks us from a dreamless sleep. Once I use binoculars to see what manner of man yells shut the fuck up at a dog. After the fire, an acrid stench halos the burnt trees. How convenient for this man to have a dog. How practiced they both are at it. The dog on a short chain cowering behind his doghouse. The man descending the back stairs with yet another chain wrapped around his fist. Repeated whistle of the midnight freight, headlight bearing down. Yeah, and that's just a great example of the hybrid form. Um, you know, the, uh, the the leaps between the content, you know, the the um, story that you're telling, and um, and then the haiku, which goes in a completely different direction from the dog and the scene um, on the journey to. Um, the fire, and then later to the train, which are completely disconnected, but sort of connected in emotional spirit, or I guess you could say, or they're, they're almost like metaphors for each other. And the way that everything in the world is kind of a metaphor, you know, we can leap from the, the feeling of the poem um, into the feeling of a haiku, um, even though they're, they're different, but they're connected at the same time. Well, and, you know, just, I'm just noticing now my word choice in the first haiku, after the fire, an acrid stench, which of course is what the neighbor is, <laughs> halos the burnt trees. The word halo usually has a positive connotation, but there that's what came to me. So mm-hmm. it's an interesting, um, almost a contradiction. Yeah. And, and um, what, is your, uh, what is your process for writing Hyben? Do you, do you start with the, the prose and then build the haiku off that? Or do you have sort of a body of haiku more often and, and you're sort of looking at how to, what you can combine with the haiku? No, I usually start with the prose. Mm-hmm. Um, don't know why. That's just the way it's worked. And sometimes it, it will be end up being a prose poem, but it wants to be a high one. And so uh, I go back and look at it sometimes and then decide where to insert a haiku and then hope to find just the right one. And that takes some doing sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a few times I have started it with a haiku or written it, inserted a few haiku, and then 
decided, well, it needs one up front. You know, what can I what can I put up there to open it up? But that is less frequent for me. Usually they're inserted. And some are very short. And uh, I, as I told you, I chose not too long ones to read from this book. But some of them are, are quite long. They're a page and a half. Um, but yeah, so I usually start with the with the prose part. Um, it's funny because for me, I don't know if you were going to ask me this, but for me, whether I'm writing free verse, whether I'm writing haibun or, or haiku, it's all one thing. I don't make sharp, it, it, the poem knows what it wants to be when I'm writing it. And I don't make a sharp demarcation between this kind and that kind. Mm -hmm. And that's why sometimes I slip between them. I'll start with this and I'll go to that or vice versa. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting the way the the movement goes. I mean, it's sort of all about the movement, about comparing, you know, even the title to the prose and then the haiku to the prose and then, you know, the swirl of all three together. And then, you know, as you mentioned, many have different, you know, multiple haiku, like the one that the, the two that you've read so far. Um, so there's a lot going on. You know, it's a real, a real big mixed bag of um, poetry. And it's really interesting to me, too, because I do think that um, Haibun are a sort of a bridge. I've never understood why the haiku sort of community thinks of itself separate from the poetry community or why the poetry poo doesn't embrace haiku. I mean, I, it, to me, haiku is the most fundamental poem, you know, I yeah. mean, it's, it's creating this entire world in this little tiny breath. Um, and it's based in like rooted in metaphor because of that cut, the juxtaposition between the two halves of a haiku. And, yeah. and really, you know, a poem or a haiku is a poem distilled into sort of its tiniest, you know, densest unit. And I don't understand why there's a, you know, it feels like a separate community. It shouldn't be. I, I don't think it should be. Um, just as the haiku has that leap or cut or jump juxtaposition, I think good free verse poems have to do that too. They, you know, they have to have a, a turn somewhere, mm -hmm. um, not just representation, but they they are a journey. Yeah, hopefully, yeah, they need to take us somewhere. Yeah, it's a great sort of reminder too to to sort of traditional poets that you have to have a sense of movement in your poem. I mean, uh, you know, one thing, you know, the volta in a sonnet it acts in the exact same way as the cut in a haiku, and it's even you know a haiku is a short, long, short, you know, thing, and then usually the cut is after the you know after the second line, although it can be sort of anywhere. But that's like the same sort of ratio as a sonnet works too in that traditional way where you have to have a turn by line eight, you know? And if you don't, it, it doesn't feel like you went anywhere. And, and a haiku is like just an even more dense unit of that. No, I agree with you. And and I have, you know, it's funny. From time to time, I've wanted to, I've, I have collections of haiku, some of which are on press, some here press published, some of which... Uh, have appeared in other contexts like Stages and Views, which was a whole other thing uh, written to Hiroshige and Hokusai Woodblock Prince. But I find that because I've written free verse for so many years and because Highburn is now fascinating me and has been, um, that I just don't pay as much attention to the time that I want to give to haiku. Mm -hmm. uh, that's why, like, um, there's haiku. Uh, they give prompts and you know you're supposed to write a haiku each day to, and I like that because the prompt is something that triggers me mm -hmm. to write a by itself yeah yeah so 
Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing about um, sort of the haiku community is that there's a sense of um, appreciating things because it's a, it's about noticing and, and looking at the world in a small detail and, and, and sort of bringing that detail to life into memory um, mm-hmm. and storing that way. And it's just a wonderful daily practice. You know, we talk about the practice of poetry and, and haiku is just such a great, you know, um, you know, non-theistic sort of religious practice that you can do to mm-hmm. appreciate life in the world around you. And you see uh, people at the haiku conference are just wonderful, happy people, so much happier than um, any other yeah. kind of place you could go. There's just so much joy in the world. And I think it has to do a lot with having that be a regular practice of noticing and appreciating the world. There, there are two haiku that I wrote recently that I'd love to share. Yeah, please do. Um, I am now in my early 80s believe it or not. I don't. And, <laughs> <laughs> I don't either. I don't know how this happened. You know, this is my own hair. But anyway, I wrote, um, in her 80s, she forgives everything. Falling leaves. Mm. And then, uh, because I was listening to Jane Hirschfield's interview with Tara Brack the other day, and she talked about forgiveness and acceptance. And then for acceptance of what comes, and then I wrote, um, everyday messages from the sky, sun, clouds, sun. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so yes, I do write the occasional haiku all by itself. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a great, it's a great thing all around. Um, uh, let's go back to the book and read another poem from uh, Keeping Time. Okay. This is the title poem. Um, it's interesting because it pulls in the, the imagery on the cover, the Santa Fe Bill and I lived there for many years, um, and the canyon, the Red Canyons, it also pulls in a dream, and it ends in my kitchen. Keeping time. Two hawks circle far above, afternoon sunlight gilding their wings as their shadows swiftly cross the road before me. In Red Canyons of the West, ravens ride the thermals, their harsh calls dark as the storm clouds shadowing the ridges. Again, that dream of refuge in a cave above the river. There is no other place but here where hawks still prey on the living, ravens descend on the dead, and the clock on the wall keeps time above a granite countertop, its polished surface chilled by mountain winds. A gas burner spurts blue, Steam hisses from the kettle, and between my palms a cup of black tea deepens as my breath rises warm through the strata of the sky. Nursing, the baby smiles, milk bubbling from her lips. Yeah, wonderful poem, Keeping Time. Uh, That's the title poem from the book, Keeping Time. The collection, yeah, Yeah. thank you. Um, Thank you. Yeah, so why did you choose this um, as the title poem? Uh, how is the how is keeping time the the central metaphor of the book? Because the book is a portrait of time, passing time. Um, in the very beginning, when I talk, there's a preface to the book, and I say, um, I've organized this collection as a calendar of days, first by seasons of the heart, and then by actual seasons. I hope you enjoy the journey. Um, but I, I would say that probably from the very beginning, when I first started writing in my mid twenties, that, um, time has been a central riddle and also affirmation in almost everything I write one way or another. 
Um, of course, the mystics say time doesn't exist, so do some scientists, it is a construct we impose, but um, we're caught in it one way or the other, and um, whether we invent it or whether it's inventing us. And I, so I think most of my poems have that feeling of moving through time. Um, it fascinates me. If I had the brain of a quantum physicist, I would be happy because I'm very fascinated with quantum stuff and, and uh, you know, as, as much as I can understand it. Yeah, well, that's why I love the uh, the cover image, too, of the crows, or, or uh, I guess it's crows. I, uh, I, I don't know. Well, in the, in the West, they might be ravens. I'm not sure what, but I love the red rock. And Yeah, there's something about one of the raven and crow has a um, the, the point at the tail and the other doesn't. And I, I can never keep it That's straight. That's interesting, yeah. So I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, uh, the but, cover image is by a photographer called Patrick Hendry, mm-hmm. from his photograph in Unsplash. Yeah, and uh, I just love though the. Um, that sense because that's what i think about all the time when you go to a place like that those kind of those rocky areas that that, that those rocks have been here for so long and on the you know american southwest there's pictograms on so many too and you just oh, that sense yeah. of like the past haven't actually gone anywhere you know that that we're sort of you know you know it's so easy to think of time as a line because you see it in books but then when you're out in a canyon like that you sort of see it as this like permanent presence in you know the sort of the eternal now and so that's I why think, i love that cover i think of it like that and i had a strange dream once uh punning on the word timetable which was a very long table with sections and my understanding in the dream was that rather than reincarnation recall or that we were somehow active in all those simultaneously whatever we means mm-hmm. you know aspects of the self or the soul a pretty interesting dream yeah, and there's you know dreams are the stuff of poetry. It's um, true. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, so um, tell us a little bit about your journey through poetry, because one of the things that we're going to look at a, a prayer the body makes uh, some poems from there too, but your poems that that are non you know haiku non hyphen oriented are just wonderful too, and 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 I think you mentioned I didn't know you know which you'd come to first the the haiku side or the traditional poetry side. It sounds like the traditional first, but what was your journey like through poetry? How did you start, and and how did you discover haiku? Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, other than the few overly sentimental love poems to my first husband that I wrote in college, you know, my love for you is like a Christmas tree, etc. I really, I read voraciously as a child, that was my universe, but I really didn't write very much. I should have seen clues because for papers I would pick, you know, Emerson's The Poet or uh, do a structural study of, of a poem as if it were a symphony and stuff like that. But I didn't really start writing um, until my mid-twenties. I went to Douglas College, I graduated, I was teaching, I'd done all the requisite things, but it wasn't enough. And I sang with the Rutgers Choir and I went to more than one uh, concert and I became fascinated more than once with the harpist. Hmm. And I felt she's one with that instrument, you know, she's that's her passion. And I thought, damn, I need a passion. <laughs> but I didn't know what it would be. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden one time, I was waiting in the car while he, my then husband, was in a meeting. He taught music. Um, and I looked up at the moon and I wrote this thing about the moon. And I'm on a, on a scrap of dry cleaning receipt um, about climbing the branches to, like a little kid trying to touch the moon. Black branches for your stairway, 
climb it if you dare. When you reach the topmost step, there'll be darkness there. You know, like you're not going to get the moon. But anyway, I was so fascinated with what had come out of my pen. That was it. And then from that time on, I, I probably bored my friends to death because I was writing all the time and scripts and scraps and carrying them around in my purse. Um, and people encouraged me, some people at Douglas, and, and uh, I just kept on. And uh, then I found that any major, or even minor, but major life passages, marriage, birthing children, I, I heard, I heard uh, Sharon Olds read her poems of the body and I thought, oh, you can write about those things. Wow. You know, and then I wrote some poems about that and my kids and me and my as a mother. And it went on from there. But later I found, too, that something I think you said, I don't remember if you said it or Alex said it, but about discovery. And in writing the poems, I was discovering things about myself that I didn't know I knew. And they were popping out and coming out, and that was fascinating. And um, it, it was a gift to me, like an unveiling almost. Um, and then I hoped that I, I remember being so excited. Bill published my first book, House by the Sea. Um, and then New Rivers published uh, a book, and Warthog Press. And, and now these are oldies now. But it was every time, oh, and before even that, I discovered that column in The Writer. Mm -hmm. And um, I forget who the first person was, but I, I remember jumping up and down because my name was mentioned, you know, honorable mention, you know. And then the, the poem was published, and Ruth Stone was, was editing that at one point, too. That's how I got to know her. So it was just a, a sequential journey that kept growing, and I never stopped. Mm -hmm. And um, it's seen me through loss. I've written my way through pain, through loss, through grief, through joy. Because it helps. I mean, when I lost Bill, I had that book, Recycling Starlight, which, I mean, it's very real. Mm -hmm. it's, it's out of print now almost. Um, but it, it starts in the ICU and it, it goes through a year of grief. I think of the wonderful poems that um, Barbara Crooker is writing and also uh, Rosemary Watola Palmer. Uh, loss is awful. But it can trigger you to, you can find your way through it with the help of, of your practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, would you say, you know, what would you have done to find an outlet for that if it weren't for poetry? Is there any, any sort of inkling of that? Know. or Yeah. But other people can find it in art or mm -hmm. music or um, sometimes in interacting with others, giving of yourself. For many years here in South Jersey, after I moved down near my daughter, I was in Santa Fe and then in Summit for a while with Bill and moved back to be with family. And then I moved down here after he died. And I helped to lead and then totally led a grief support group for widows and widowers for like 10 years, which ended when COVID stopped the in-person meetings. And at that point I thought, okay, I I've had enough. I'm very empathetic and I was feeling all that grief, you know? And, mm -hmm. But that was a giving back. That was a, a, another kind of practice. And it was creative in its own way, just like teaching had been. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, let's hear uh, the next poem in the list. Okay, let's see. That would be Fog Shrouded. This goes with the weather the last couple of weeks. <laughs> Fog Shrouded. 
Today was hot and humid here in southern New Jersey. The air hinting of possible thunderstorms pre-dawn. I'm reminded of the opening words of an old English madrigal from the 1200s, one I enjoyed singing in an a cappella madrigal group years ago. Summer is a coming in, Lord, to sing cuckoo. Summer is coming in, loud sing cuckoo. Somehow we must be able to sing summer in these hard days, even when so much of the world is aflame with violence, consumed with grief. In the distance, a child cries, smoke on the wind. It's hard to find a song inside us when we breathe or when our fists clench in anger. Sirens blare from the television in the living room, screams echo, car horns blare. I've never heard a cuckoo sing, but a year ago May, when I woke to a foggy morning, fog shrouded, this morning's robin sings inside me. Yeah, another beautiful hyben that's a frog shrouded from Keeping Time. And yeah. can you talk to us a little bit about how you go about writing a haiku? Because I think um, in, a, in one way, the hyben is such a great form for people starting out in poetry um, because, you know, you can write a sort of a diaristic entry and, and be good and clean about space. And then that's a good prose section. But haiku are hard. And so how do you um, how do you approach a haiku? Um, you know, do you have one side and then you, you sort of think about the other? Um, how, how is a haiku generated in your mind? That's a tough one. I think, first of all, a haiku goes through more drafts <laughs> than a haibun or a free verse poem for me. Um and especially like where where there's prompts and stuff like that, and I'll write something and then I'll think, oh no no no, and I'll switch the lines around and um, I I would just say that it either comes from a moment that I've experienced that I want to capture um, in in tiny form because the moment needs that kind of compression to be as powerful as the moment has been. Or um, it would just, I don't know, it's, it's a, a word or a phrase that'll pop in my head and then I'll take it to see where it goes with the thought in mind that, that I want it to be. It's a, it's a tiny time capsule. Mm-hmm. It's a tiny time capsule and I can't pin down for you, Tim, exactly what what prompts me to write haiku versus haibun versus free verse just that it knows what it wants to be mm-hmm. when it happens. And um, and two, I think joining the haiku society, immersing myself in haiku, reading lots of haiku. Um, you know, I taught for many years in poets in the schools from like second or third grade on up. And I was fearless. I mean, I, I walked into fourth grade classrooms and had them writing haibun, and they were good. Mm-hmm. And how do they learn by osmosis? By just immersing them in them. Mm-hmm talking about you know how they work and so on but but not too much because mostly just the example the lesson that i wrote in the haiku handbook um about using examples to, to trigger you know putting something on the board and writing the group having the group contribute and then moving toward individual so i i don't know if that's a satisfactory answer for you but um i usually start with an image in my mind and i'll get that first line down which sometimes becomes the last line or the middle line but it takes me to the other couple of lines so. and you mentioned um 
you know, that they go through the most drafts, um, the haiku. Uh, yeah. Why is that? What are the usual, you, you mentioned moving stuff around, but what are the kind of, you know, word changes that you to tend to do? Yeah. It has to mm-hmm. be distilled. It has to be pared down to the words that do the job. No more, no, and hopefully not too few. Mm-hmm. I don't count syllables. I do do the shorter, longer, shorter line. And sometimes I've done one line haiku too. Mm-hmm. Um, I did one mallards leaving in the water rippled sky and i use that to show line breaks sometimes because it can mean where you break it can change the meaning mm-hmm. mallards leaving in the water rippled sky or mallards leaving in the water you know but for me it had to be one line so that's another whole thing yeah it's interesting too you don't see very many um um, haiku with a with the cut the kariji in the middle of the line but you do that kind of with regularity and there's an interesting effect so there's a great example right here in fog shrouded that we just read which is um you know, in the distance a child cries smoke on the wind and so you get the use of that line break like that enjambment within the haiku mm-hmm. um, but you also get the cut in the middle of that line too which is a really interesting um you know way to go about it um, is that something that you, is that one of the things that you play with in, in drafts to get, you know, the, the line breaks right too? To get the line breaks right, yes. As to where the break happens, it's not intentional. Mm-hmm. It's just where it needs to be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? No, it definitely does. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, let's move to, uh, another poem and we're going to talk about, um, the, uh, the other book, the book too. Yeah. Another yeah. recent book. A Prayer of the Body Mate. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That has a lot of very personal stuff in it. This one, this one was triggered by learning, and I had known, but I had forgotten. There's an a, a epitaph at the beginning. Numerous studies have shown that difficult-to-heal wounds respond well to honey dressings. Hmm. Honey is antibiotic or anti-infection. Healing the wound with honey. Numerous studies have shown that difficult to heal wounds respond well to honey dressings. It must have been inflicted in another life, this wound we can't remember. Not even sure whose it may have been. Sometimes we feel a rift in the flesh needing stitches, or a wound of the spirit that even the heavy blue dressing of the sky can't fix. An invisible fissure in the heart or brain, cradled in our arms like a refugee child, too damaged to weep. Sometimes we hear the bees whose sting is less important than their task of filling the comb for the queen, or the beekeeper in his white suit and gloves, humming back at the hive. We each have a job to do, the bees to gather nectar and transform it into honey, the beekeeper to steal the pot of gold, and what is our work? We who need to learn the art of scars. We must learn the names of honey, give its sticky sweetness to our tongues, fill our cupped hands with healing, and offer it to the ancestors of our still open wounds. And that was Healing the Wound with Honey uh, from A Prayer the Body Makes, a, a book of uh, more traditional poetry from Penny Harder. Right. And um and just beautiful music. I, I love there's so many lines in that poem, the the filling the comb for the queen. There's just so many, you know, the rhythmic music of the language is really wonderful. Um oh, thank you. How, how does that compare? How is the composition of a poem in that style compared to writing Hyben like the other books? Quite different. Mm-hmm. Um 
I think that it unrolls almost like a song and I just follow it. And I think Alejandro talked about this. You, you don't need to know where you're going until you get there. Mm -hmm. And so I follow it and um, one thing leads to another to another. And then it's different because it's a little less deliberate, I think. With the high blend, I realize that I'm dealing in, in a prose block and I realize that I need to find a haiku that will work. Whereas here, I, I'm just writing it and seeing what happens, seeing how it unfurls or unrolls, and then um, and all the poems in here. And then hoping that I uh, go from here to there and, and come with an ending that's suitable for where I started from. And, and that's the thing, too, I wanted to ask about is the endings, because that, that poem um, has a great ending. But the, the hyphen I'll do, too, because it's a great haiku at the end. And, and it makes me wonder about, you know, what, a, what an end is to a poem. Um, what, is the, what is a good ending to a poem for you? Hmm. One that feels right. Mm -hmm. One that um, doesn't repeat where I've been before. Uh, one that maybe contains a surprise or a startling turn, um, and yet fits. I think I like to surprise myself with the endings, which sounds strange since I'm the one writing it, but you know what I mean, right? Mm -hmm. It comes out of a place that I didn't know was there, and, and then suddenly there it is. So uh, uh, sometimes in revising a poem, and some of these I revise quite a bit. Others I hardly revise. They just come, you yeah. know. But sometimes in revising, I will knock out a whole stanza. I will move the end further up and come up with a new end. Uh, very often I'll knock out the beginning because I realize the poem doesn't begin there. It begins, you know, that was the warming up verse. <laughs> and now the, the poem begins the next the next stanza or even beyond that. So, But as for the endings... Um, if I've got an ending that I think I don't like or it goes too far or it's repetitive, I have no qualms about chopping it and, you know, starting again or discovering that the ending really was in the stanza before. Mm -hmm. That can happen, too. Yeah. It's always interesting to hear, you know, how the poems come to be. And if anybody's any questions for Penny Harder, uh, leave them in the chat windows either on Facebook or YouTube, and I will pass uh, them along. Uh, but let's hear another poem, Penny. I think we're going back to uh, um, keeping time. I tried time. to sort of put them in an order that made sense. Yeah. Now, this one is, is relatively new. I, I acknowledge how old I am. And though I, people tell me I look younger than I am, but my body sometimes knows it, especially mornings. And when we've been through a lot of things in life. So this is called At Home in This Body. I'm at home in this body, where once an entire landscape flourished, verdant hills and valleys, rivers to be forded, mountains fearlessly climbed. At home in this body, where once flights of stairs, like the bleachers in the football stadium during college, could be raced up two at a time, where youthful passions flared, pregnancies swelled and delivered two babies, breasts gave ready milk, Slim and energetic, this body boded no betrayal, did not ache upon awakening or fear illness, another fall. 
still at home in this body, the landscape narrowed to what's possible these later years. I celebrate what is, survival after cancer and chemotherapy, after the new hip, after profound loss, yet continuance. Although some mornings like now, when the dream door cracks open to remind me of what was, I wake to sit on the edge of the bed, rocking my way back into now this home. Another morning, my arms rise like wings in this autumn light. Yeah, I was at home in this body, um, taking a look back at Keeping Time, Hyben for the Journey by Penny Harder. Um, and Penny, it's interesting. I, I think of you already as a poet who, um, you know, writes for yourself. Like there's a sort of a sense that it's healing for you and, and that, you know, you're listening to the music and it's improving your life. But there's a component about sharing poems, too, that's so important. I think if there's a way that if uh, if you just kept them in a notebook, it wouldn't be the same as sharing them with other people. How much do you think about that, about the audience that you have, given that you're a poet who's writing and sort of exploring your own psyche? How much do you think about the person who's eventually going to be reading these? I think about it, but not necessarily in the context of publication in a book. I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful for the books that I have. And my my hope and dream is that they will reach out to other people and nourish them in some way or inspire them. Or, But, you know, I don't know if I told you, I guess I did, but during the, the lockdown for many months, I wrote daily. Mm-hmm. And um, I wish I were still doing that, and I may start it again. And I wrote it. And I kind of quickly revised it, and I published it on Facebook. I put it on Facebook, and I said to myself, I don't care if there's what I've heard what you said about curating. I don't care whether a journal um, wants unpublished in any form. I want these to reach people, because the poems I was writing then were not only to lift my spirit during some of those long doldrum days, but also hoping to offer people little moments of calm, of oasis, of peace, of hope and joy. And many of the poems, I didn't have that many copies of Stillwater Days, or if I get more, I'll send you one. Many of the poems there were, some of them even started out pretty pretty much in the doldrums, but I made myself, and in hopes that I was bringing others along with me, I lifted them up. <laughs> so at the end, just like my arms rise like wings in this autumn light, I tried to lift people's spirits. So yes, in that case, I was thinking about other people reading them. And people did respond, as they do on Facebook. Um, and I was hoping that I was giving them a gift. Mm-hmm. If they didn't want the gift, well, that's okay, you know. But if anybody was touched by something I wrote, or if their spirit was kind of down and they read it, and it lifted their spirit, that's that's more important to me than, than almost anything. But also... Yes, writing is a gift to myself, um, discovering what I'm feeling, getting it out. Um, one time when I was going through a rough patch in my first marriage, um, and I went to a poetry reading, I read all these nature poems, and a friend who was a, a fellow poet said, where is your life and your work? Hmm. And I realized I was afraid to name to myself what I was feeling, you know, and that opened the door for me, too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a there's a power in in sort of taking command and naming things and naming your own feelings and in putting them to words and then being able to share them with others. And I think that's one of the re- main reasons why poetry is so healing. 
Um, but you mentioned, you know, during the pandemic, um, and I do have a copy of Stillwater Days. Oh, so you, you did send one. Yeah. So if you'd like to uh, read any poems from there, um, we could read a poem from there, too. But it was, it was so interesting because there were so many... Um, um, you know, people were just so, you know, poetry was such an important thing for people, especially that first, you know, six months of the pandemic, you know, for Poets Respond, we were getting, you know, thousands of submissions a week um, and all about the pandemic, of course, as oh, people sure. were healing through it. Um, you know, everything was up by a factor of uh, of like, you know, five or ten. And, uh, you know, and so and we had the open lines where, you know, if you go back and look at our YouTube channel, anybody you want to look back at the beginning of the pandemic, we had these open line things that went for three hours where people just sharing poems. Um, and it was really a, a healing thing, too. Um, and so you were able to do that for a lot of people through social media with uh, the poems from Stillwater Days. Uh, is there one you want to read? I could. I can. I'll read. Um, thank you for the invitation. I hadn't remembered that I sent it to you. Uh, let's see. I'm going to read the next to the last poem, okay. page 63, for the new year. And this is Memories of Santa Fe. For the new year. On this first day of the new year, may all the birds I remember coming to the two feeders we hung from the branches of the Russian olive near that long ago window, gather again here under this dawning sky to enjoy suet, sunflower seeds, and millet. I can't recall the name of the store where we got the bags of birdseed, but I do recall the pleasure you took in filling the feeders, defeating the wily squirrels, and our rare glimpse of a red fox running alongside the tracks behind the house as we watched the constant fluttering of sparrows and finches. And then came the flickers, those gorgeous visitors, who suddenly blessed our yard with their red cats and brilliant speckled plumage. On this first day of the new year, I'm feeding, too, pecking at seas of the past, discarding holes that fell to lie on the snow or in the winter pale grass. My time caught in bird time, as I celebrate both what was and what is, winging forward through those years to this life now, the one where a flock of cardinals darts across the road to light on the barren limbs of a family of scrub oak, small scarlet harbingers, whose wings raise the dead brown leaves still clinging to their cold branches into the dawning light of this new year, ringing in hope. Yeah, a great poem uh, for the pandemic toward the end of it. Um, mm. uh, that was for the new year. And that's from uh, Stillwater Days, which uh, you can tell uh, the metaphor of that just by the title and the image uh, of the pandemic. Yeah, and the, the title poem is very short, if I can find it for you, if there's time. Yeah, sure. Um, let me see. I should look on the table of contents, but I'm just being, here it is. 41. Huh? 41, I think. Oh, before me. <laughs> Stillwater days. I row out on still waters to gather clouds, net them in my old fishing sand, and stow them in my rusty canoe for when I might need them on a day too bright to see. I gather clouds from blue waters, Fill the chambers of my heart with gentle murmurs, find comfort in their slow shape shifting that mirrors my own these still water days. Yeah, there's a beautiful phrase, still water days uh, by Penny Harder. Um, going back to Hyben, um, Audrey Friedman wants to know um, where, the, where the best places to publish Hyben are. Um, 
Is there, do you go to the traditional, you know, we talked about it already, but I feel like Hyben is a way for haiku to break through into traditional publishing because for some reason, and I really, I don't understand it, but um, it took forever for even Poetry Magazine to publish a haiku and then they weren't even haiku. <laughs> so there was that issue. Yeah. Um, but but I think Hyben, you know, they work through the size of a poem. And so to me, it feels like you could send Hyben anywhere. Um, but but well, Audrey wants to know, can. yeah. But but Audrey likes to know where the best places for Hyben are. Where do you like to read them the well, most? Maybe. Um, it's funny. I haven't submitted that many of them to the places because I've been too busy throwing them online. <laughs> but um, there's modern Hyben and Tonka Prose, Contemporary Hyben. Um, there's if you just Google Hyben publications, you'll find a whole bunch of places. I mean, I, I, the, the article that I sent you has a list of them, but I don't have that in front of me right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was dated then. So some of them have gone out of business. I, I just think, um, if you, if you Google Highbun or search it on whatever search engine you use and, or journals that accept Highbun, I think you'll find quite a few. Mm-hmm. Um, and going back to, you mentioned teaching um, Hyben, um to young poets in you know, yes. fourth grade or so, which, you know, of course, we do right. the Rattle Young Poets Anthology. So we get to see how brilliant, you know, young writers are. Oh, absolutely. But there's that, the whole, you know, the stress and in, in the, the fretting in the haiku world about the 575 thing and how it's like, it's such a, so wrongly taught for almost everybody. Every time we publish haiku as Rattle's daily poem, I get like three emails that say, that's not haiku, it's not 575. So did you find... Yeah, a children's book that I published. They they with Simon and Schuster. I forget who I think, and they misreviewed it because they said, well, that's not haiku. You know, it, it wasn't in the haiku form. It's not haiku. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I often walked into a classroom, and they knew I was coming, and I was going to do haiku among other things. So they made haiku all over the bulletin board, and they were all five seven five, and mm-hmm. not so good. And I had to really be careful because I didn't want to you know put the teacher down. But I just worked very hard to help them understand that in English, many people are no longer counting syllables, and there are other things that are much more important than syllables. Um, I used to give them an example. Tell me the difference, and I can't remember, I'm, I'm shamefully can't remember the author of the one I use as the best example, but I would say, on the way to school, a dead cat was in the road. I felt very sad. Well, that's 575, right? Then mm-hmm. was it... Mike McClendock, I don't remember, but it was dead cat, open mouth to the pouring rain. Mm. Tell me which one you like better. You know, what's the difference? And I would ask the kids. And they got it right away, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, that's but, just, it's a strange thing about it is that there, it's so clear. It, it, it's easy to explain what haiku actually is. And yet, because it makes such an easy teaching exercise for kids who are trying to learn syllables, you know, it I ends know. up being completely corrupted. It's such a strange thing. So, um, we we had a few more marks. Are we going? To yeah, go to yeah. I think we have time. We had two left, and yeah, let's do. Uh... It's seven and eight. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then we'll see what else, if anything, or if there are any other questions. See, this is another body poem. We are in bodies. Bodies are with us, riddles. But this one, I I couldn't tell you where this came from. I really couldn't. It just. I think. It came from my sense of everything being interconnected, everything being one, you know, we all are, everything that is, is. A prayer the body makes. In fetal position, our knees drawn up, 
arms parallel in supplication, and eyes rolled back into the skull of sleep, that dark absence that swallows us, wrapping us in ivy evergreen from birth to death. A prayer the body makes beyond words, beyond the unheard frequencies of cells broadcasting into the abyss, beyond the arc of another body curling warm against our own, belly rising, falling. Translate, the mind demands. Translate this prayer that we may all practice it together. Translate the body's pores, breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out, asleep or awake, in the wordless center, holding all. Yeah, another beautiful poem that is A Prayer the Body Makes. And again, uh, that was from That's the title, the poem. title poem from A Prayer the Body Makes by Penny Harder. Um, this one, too, is from Kelsey Books. Um, yeah. And we have a question uh, from Lana Ayers, who was last week's guest, actually. Yes, I, I, I yeah. Um, she wants to know, uh, Lana says, um, your titles are as wonderful as the poems. Uh, Penny, do the titles announce themselves to you after you have written the poem or sometimes arise before the poem? Where do the titles come from? <laughs> Great question, Lana. Um, probably after. Sometimes before sometimes i'll i'll have a title uh, that i'll change in fact i'll even have to go back into my word files and change it um sometimes it's a line from the poem sometimes it's not so sometimes it's the first line i can't there's no stock mm-hmm. way i do it but frequently i'll start out with one title that is what i think i'm going to be writing about and I'll write the poem, and it won't be about that mm-hmm. as much as I thought it would be. So I'll just chuck that title away and, and try to come up with a new one. I would say most often, um, if I look in the book, well, not always, though. You know, Among the Roses, The Arrival, aren't in the poem, but they describe, in the high ones, but they describe what goes on in it. Mm-hmm. So that I would say in that case, probably I titled it after the fact and, and what do you think goes into a good title is there certain characteristics a good one has that you look for hmm well it has to be <clears throat> somehow it has to relate um to the content and it can't be too generic too general it can't be too wishy-washy i mean fog shrouded um I could have taken anything in that poem, in the distance, on the wind, you know. Mm-hmm. The main idea was um, that the world was shrouded at that time, too, yeah. it still mm-hmm. is. So um, that's the best I can do with that one. <laughs> so so why, you know, for that poem, I'll put it up on screen again. Um, I have the wrong book, though. It's hard, it's hard when there's so many books. <laughs> so, but on Frog Shout, so why, um, you know, you said any, you know, a lot of things could have been the title. Um, why was it, what was it about Frog Shrouded that you uh, decided, you know, because it's the... Say that uh, five times fast. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. Frog Shrouded. <laughs> um, because, first of all, hot and humid. Fog is humid. Um, secondly, um grief consumed with grief grief is like a fog smoke on the wind smoke is akin to fog and and then the fact is that i did wake 
to a foggy morning and write that haiku at that time. Mm -hmm. But I put it in here. So that's another thing that I realize we haven't talked about, that sometimes I will steal a haiku from before before and, and enter it into a haibun. Is there any, you know, what's the, um, the feel within the haiku community? Is there an etiquette about that? Like if you published a haiku, but then use it later for a haibun, does that, you know, this whole published stuff, which is why I prefer curated, as you know. But, uh, but does that sort of, you know, can, can you reuse a haiku, you know, what, or for a haibun when it's already been published singularly? Is that something that people worry about or not? I don't worry about it mm-hmm. because it's in a different context. So it becomes a different poem to me. Um, and once in a while, I've taken a haiku out of a haibun, not necessarily a published haibun, but, mm-hmm. you know, and submitted it as a single haiku. Yeah. So, well, back we to the titles, uh, Lana says, your titles make me want to read the poems. Uh, so many are so imagistic and or emotional. And I think that is a thing. That the title is the doorway into the poem. And, and you know, sometimes you, you want to open the door and that. sometimes you don't. Said that, Tim. That's beautiful. Yeah. The haiku is the doorway into the poem. Yeah. The, I mean, the title is a doorway. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, let's uh, close up with one last poem. We have one more on the list and we'll, we'll finish yeah, up with that. It's the last one in, in the Highbun book. And it's called Searching for Omens, and here come the ravens again. (laughs) Migrating across time, ravens have been omens. Their raucous bodies dropping from the sky to finish the job on battlefields. And their corvid cousins, the crows, have often brought grim tidings, their coarse cause announcing the death they carry under their wings. For weeks I have been haunted by omens that witness these times, I've seen these dark birds circling still. Inverting the toaster, I shake its burnt crumbs into the sink. But now I search for other omens, ones that might bring hope in times of pestilence and war, of senseless slaughter, senseless slaughter, cruelty and greed. So I look to the simplicity of this morning's sunlight, the scent of fresh coffee, the miracle of an apple I can slice and pair with cheddar cheese. Blooming again in the neighbor's garden, a widow's rose bush. And as I break my lightly fast, I give thanks that I'm still here, having survived what we all must, my shares of sorrow, loss, illness, the turbulence of years. Perhaps I am here for this, to love the broken world, affirming again and again that even on those days when the dark birds haunt us, we must seek sustenance in our daily bread and do whatever work we can to praise the light. Yeah, that was Searching for Omens. Another great example of the use of the hymen, how far it goes, I love, from the um, you know the crows and the birds to inverting the toaster. I shake its burnt crumbs <laughs> into the sink. Um, and that, that really is the joy because you never know where you're going to go. It, you know, a hyphen as a form keeps poems so surprising and so um, interesting the whole time because it's always like you know here comes something and I don't know what it's going to be and then it's always something you know interesting that relates in a strange way and, and has a mental mm-hmm. leap that you make this connection and and I didn't know what it was going to be till it arrived yeah exactly it, yeah it's so fascinating to join you on that journey and I do think that you know if we if we had you know hyben is a practice of people journaling and thinking about the world that way I think we'd all be better off like spiritually and emotionally I think that that hyben is a thing that it'd just be wonderful if we get more people to do, you know, on their own, not even necessarily publishing them, but just writing them. 
people can. I mean, I recently did a workshop for senior citizens here down, down, down in a library, and they all wrote Highbone. And and I'll I'll emphasize that again. One of the ways to encourage people to write Highbone haiku, whatever it is, is by example. Not just my own, but you know, immerse them in the in the genre, and then let's talk about it like we're doing now, and then it'll it'll come. And they can do research if they want. I mean, they can, you know, understand about how you put the haiku in, and the haiku shouldn't be a part of the narrative, and so on. But you got to let it flow. Mm-hmm. Got to take the risk. Yeah, well, that's a great way to close out the interview because that seems like uh, how you approach poetry, Penny. And it's really great to meet you and, and get to know you oh, and, and know you. that spirit. It's been a wonderful. A wonderful exchange. I was a little nervous. I didn't know what we would say. And I thank all the people that may be watching. Oh, definitely. Well, it's always just fun. Never anything to be worried about because we're just uh, chatting about poetry, which is something we all love. But thanks again, Penny, for being here and and sharing these three wonderful books with me. Thank you very much, Tim. Take care. Good night. Bye. Thank you. It was Penny Harder. And of course, we had three books by Penny. We have Keeping Time, um, Hyben for the Journey. We have A Prayer the Body Makes, the, uh, a book of uh, traditional poetry, I guess you could say. And, uh, and then Stillwater Days, the book of poems um, the, about the pandemic. And you can find all of those at Penny Harder's website, which is pretty easy. It's pennyharderpoet.com. You can find all those books um, and more, all of uh, Penny's vast collection of books. So uh, do check those out at pennyharderpoet.com. Now we're going to take a quick break and go to our open lines. And, uh, of course, open lines, how they work. You can share whatever you'd like. Uh, one poem per customer, two page max, I think, is the usual thing that we do. Um, and if you want to share a poem, the easiest way to do it is to email it to me right now to open mic. That's open mic at rattle.com so that I can show it on the screen. And then I'm going to take this link to the Zoom, which uh, Penny was on, and add it to Facebook and YouTube so you can all join us. Um, I'll be right back in just a moment with more poetry. We're back. Now, the uh, prompt poem for this week, I'll put it on screen, or the prompt for this week. And I I should stress, you don't have to share uh, prompt poems. I don't know if I said that already. You can share whatever you'd like. You can share poems about current events, stuff you've published recently, stuff you've wrote recently. Whatever you'd like to do, feel free to share. But we do have a prompt every episode inspired by last week's guest. And last week's guest was Lana Hexman Ayers and her poem. Well, actually, I'll invite uh, Katie Dozier, our prompt poems editor, on the air. Um, hey, Katie, how you doing? I'm doing great. I love that interview so much. The only thing you didn't cover was how to stop writing hyphen. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a good point. Because, you know, once you start, it's kind of addictive. You can, you know, turn yeah. a- And then it's also like, why why write a haiku when you can make it a hyphen? <laughs> you know? I know, I know. <laughs> um, but anyway, that is not the prompt for, for this week. Um, although maybe later, I don't know, we'll see. Um, <laughs> but the prompt for this week was to write a sequel a poem that refers to another poem and starts immediately after the events of that poem. So uh, this was a form that, that we kind of made up with talking about it because Lana likes to do a lot of after poems. Um, and you wrote one and I wrote one. What was your experience writing it? Well, what I really liked about it was that calling it a sequel and being so referential gave me kind of freedom to like really dig into what I like about a particular poem and replicate it more than I would have felt like, I, I don't know if I just called it an after, if I would even feel comfortable being as close as I was able to get into the poem. So I thought it was fun. I hope everybody else thought it was fun. 
Well, for me, I did find a little, I have a little trouble, um, like not trying to use the voice. At first, first one I tried to do, and I'll, I'll share the one I actually did in a, in a minute, but I tried to do uh, The Snowman by Wallace Stevens, which was the first poem I ever loved back when I was like 15 or something. And, and I, then I, I was like, I'm, it's like a, an imitation of Wallace Stevens instead of my own poem. And so that wasn't working at all. I was like, you know, how do, you know, I was like, you know, the one who must have a mind of winter, one who must have a mind of spring. And then it was like, you know, and then you have to describe things in the way that Stevens did. And I just, I wasn't, it didn't feel like it was me, you know? And so I did something else. Did you have that trouble at all? Or did you just crank it out? You know, I decided just to lean into it Uh because I actually, so I did mine on Maggie Smith's poem, Good Bones. And I just, I finished reading her memoir so I felt like very, very versed in like what her life was like. And I decided just to allow myself to be really close while well, being very respectful. And I could not scream more like this is based on Maggie Smith's poem. So I don't feel like it's a problem if you're doing that. But you're pretty close to the snowman poem. You used to recite it in your head when you were little, right? So maybe you're too close to that. I think one. that might have been the problem. Like I couldn't get out of it. I was just like stuck inside the snowman. And the whole point of the poem was supposed to be like you get out of the snowman, but it didn't. I was stuck, like linguistically, yeah, musically. Yeah, inside or of the snowman. No, literally in inside too. of the snowman. <laughs> a lot of nothingness. Um, so I, don't know, I think if uh, what we'll do is if you want to, if people want to share, you know, the the source poem too, as long as it's short, you know, it keeps under that two pages. Do you want to? Do you think it's worth sharing Good Bones, or do you think people know it well enough? It's it's one of the most viral poems that's been you know shared the most of the last you know decade or so. Do you think we should read? It's a great poem. That's totally up to you. I mean, I don't know. It's, um, you know, just as people understand, it's very referential. My poem is to it. Um, well, why don't you, why don't you read it? Do you want to read Good Bones okay. first and then yours? Okay. Sure. Okay. Good Bones by Maggie Smith. Life is short, so I keep this for my children. Life is short, and I've shortened mine in a thousand delicious, ill-advised ways. A thousand deliciously ill-advised ways I'll keep for my children. The world is at least 50% terrible, and that's a conservative estimate, so I keep this for my children. For every bird, there's a stone thrown at a bird. For every love child, a child broken, bagged, sunk in a lake. Life is short, and the world is at least half terrible, and for every kind stranger, there's one who will break you, so I keep this for my children. I'm trying to sell them the world. Any decent realtor walking you through a real shithole chirps on about good bones. This place could be beautiful, right? You could make this place beautiful. Yeah. So that was published in Waxwing in 2016. And for those who don't know, went very about as viral as a poem can possibly go. Mm-hmm. I think it's fair to say. Yeah, for sure. And that, you know, for to place everybody back in 2016, that was like the, you know, the beginning of the Trumpy era. And like things started to feel like they were a little uh, off the rails. <laughs> so um, yeah. I think that has a lot of, you know, it is something that people could relate to. But um, mm-hmm. but the idea that there's good, you know, behind the walls of the world is a is a concept that really resonated with a lot of people. And so that was uh, I think that's why that poem went viral. And it's, a, it's a great metaphor, too. Uh, so what was yeah. your your sequel to that? OK, well, my sequel to it is called Even Better Ligaments, a sequel after Maggie Smith. Life is long, though I keep this from my daughters. Life is long and I've stretched mine in a million ways that threatened to snap me so I'll keep this for my daughter. Life is long, though my eldest doesn't believe it when I tell her to put on her tutu faster. As they pull her hair into a bun, she asks, why are we never running early? Pirouetting through the rooms of this new house, 
the girl's house, the one we used to only dream about. Life is long, but have you noticed how here it smells like pumpkin pie spice instead of that anger I could never quite bake nice. In every silence, I think of the old coldness and find a knitted throw to wrap myself inside. In every silence, I know that just one pillar can hold up a whole home. To sell them the world, I bought the world myself, and we make this place beautiful. Yeah, so great sequel there. Great uh, use of the form you made up, Katie. <laughs> Even better. <living> <laughs> <ones>. <laughs> I feel like I'm cheating every week and <laughs> my own prompts. Like, I don't know if it's fair. You guys are going to... I'm going to kick me out of the open lines, probably. <laughs> you could be kicked out. Um, <laughs> but we'll see what your prompt is next week and uh, at the end of the show. And also, you know, we do the poetry space, of course, on Twitter, which is a fun thing, you know, an hour-long sort of roundtable chat. And this week we were talking about contests because the Rattle Poetry Prize was just announced. And contests are a big thing in poetry, a lot of uh, issues surrounding them, the, the sort of ethics and fairness and using them to generate income. So that's the topic. Anything you want to add about uh, what we'll be talking about? I have a lot to say. I think most the rattle contests obviously are amazing, but in general, poetry contests do a lot of things that I think are ethically a little shady, and I want to call call some things out on the space. Lay it down. Yeah. <laughs> well, the one thing, and I'll talk about this in the space, but the extended deadline thing drives me crazy because it almost me makes too. you have to extend the deadline. <laughs> you know, for the like, I'm just this is a deadline, people. Everyone thinks I'm going to extend it. I have to be like, no, we don't extend deadlines because it's like such norm. Anyway, we'll talk about that <laughs> and much more. That's Thursday at uh, 4 p.m. Eastern. No, 3 p.m. Eastern. 3 p.m. Eastern. 3 p.m. Yep. Eastern. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's the heart of the time zones. But 3 p.m. Eastern. It is. Um, on Twitter, if you're on Twitter, you don't need the app anymore, which is nice to participate if anybody wants to jump on and share their thoughts about um, about uh, contests. And you can do that by looking at Katie's Twitter, which is Katie underscore Dozier, because she's the uh, host and I'm the co-host. But anyway, thanks, Katie, for uh, for sharing that great poem. And I uh, hope you get thanks. to stick around. But if not, that's no problem, too, I understand. Thanks very much. I'm looking forward to hearing your sequel. Yeah, the my sequel to my sequel. <laughs> yeah, my sequel <laughs> is coming up. And my sequel um, is right here let me find it so i like i said i tried to write about the snowman at first the wallace stevens poem and then i was like well that didn't really work but what is an epic poem that i don't know that well actually because i was thinking as katie suggested that uh, it was maybe because like the snowman sound is so stuck in my head that i couldn't unsnowman myself um so what i went for is um what work is which i couldn't really remember the poem the philip levine poem uh, what work is and uh, if you don't know that poem, I won't read the whole thing, but it's, uh, you know, someone standing in line waiting for work, hoping to get a job um, in the rain, um, thinks that uh, his brother is uh, a few spots ahead of him in line, and then realizes it's not, but then has this reverie about, you know, missing and never expressing love for the brother um, and, and about what work really is. It's a beautiful poem. And so it made me think about work and, uh, and my brother. And uh, so this was my poem after work, uh, which seemed like a good title. And here it is, After Work, a sequel for Phil and Chris, my brother's Chris. After Work, after the clank of the stamp, after the rip of the rivet, after the heavy sack is thrown in the trash, after the box is pushed to the back of the bin, after the grease of an apron is balled in a fist, after the pallet is wrapped, the doors closed, the lock latched, the clasp clicked, the iron lid lifted and shut with a crash. After the fish are fed, their little bits of other fish. After their freeze and thaw. After the spark and the arc and the solder. After the meal is rinsed from the dish. 
After the tailings are stacked and the papers are piled and the air from the furnace moves through them, after the lights are dimmed and the bucket is dumped, after the sigh of the machine shutting off, after the smoke and the beer and the shock of the air, there is still the rust on the rocks at the poles of the moon. There is still the ice at the bottom of its craters, always growing, but never grown full. That is my afterwork. I try to think of every closing that both me and my brother would have done in all the jobs we've had. So those are all included in there. And that is after work for a Phil Levine and Chris Green. So let's see what everybody else on the call has. And we'll just go in order as we like to do. And Carla Schwartz is up next. Hey, Carla. Hi. Uh, what a wonderful night so far. It's really good. And I really love this prompt, Katie. Um, and uh, especially loved it because, I mean, I felt, yes, you can talk about what happens immediately after, but you can also go to a new place Mm -hmm. by yourself with this poem. So that's what I did. And actually I did two, but I'm only going to do one Mm -hmm. uh, here. And I will do the first one that I sent you, which was um, a poem by Stanley Kunitz called um, Touch Me. Mm -hmm. Do you want to read that it, poem, too, or just describe sure. it? I, I, I can read that okay. one. It's pretty short. Uh, let's see. Okay. So, uh, st- summer is late, my heart. Words plucked out of the air some 40 years ago when I was wild with love and torn almost into scatter. <laughs> scatter like leaves this night of whistling wind and rain it's my heart that's late it is my song that's flown outdoors all afternoon under the gunmetal under a gunmetal sky staking my garden down i kneeled to the crickets trilling underfoot as if about to burst from their crusty shells And like a child again, marveled to hear so clear and and brave a music pour from such a small machine. What makes the engine go? Desire, desire, desire. The longing for the dance stirs in the buried life. One season only, and it's done. So let the battered old willow thrash against the window panes and the house timbers creak. Darling, do you remember the man you married? Touch me. Remind me who I am. Yeah, that was Stanley Kunitz touch me. And one of the, I just love that last line, remind me who I am. Um, what a great poem by Stanley. Um, and, and interestingly, Stanley, uh, we had an interview set up with Stanley, and he passed away right before we uh, oh. we had it. He was, uh, oh. yeah, it would have been wonderful. Um, so I feel like I missed, if I just scheduled it a little sooner, he was uh, going to do it. But that was a beautiful poem, Touch Me, by Stanley Kunitz. And then here is your, uh, your My response, poem. your sequel. My sequel, yeah. which is called uh, Let Me Touch You. Let the rabbit tend summer's last flowers. My long-lived husband, my pliant muscle. Let me touch you. Let me remind you who you are. Let us curl in bed, each with a book in hand. Wait out the torrent storm. Let the raging winds batter our home. 
We'll rattle, yes, but lie entwined in hush. Yes, I'll remind you, my project poet, of your fenced lyrics, your well-lit free verse, your sturdy elegies. We've patched the mice out of our house many a time, stuffed steel wool up the shower drain at night. Now this creaky home, like us, shows its age. Tomorrow, tomorrow, we'll walk out in steamy air. Take my hand, my heart. It's not too late for love. Now that's beautiful, Carla. I love that. Let me touch you after the Stanley Coons poem. Yeah, wonderful use of the forum to, to pull you know into the future and make it personal. It's a beautiful, beautiful poem. Thank you so much. Thank you, Katie. (laughs) Take care, Carla. You too. It was Carla Schwartz with Let Me Touch You. Um, Let's see. And next in line is Deb T. As Deb Tenenbaum, of course. (laughs) Okay. I was getting ready to uh, comment on Carla's beautiful poem, but um, I will switch gears. And um, I chose a poem... Um, by James Tate. I thought if I'm doing a sequel, I wanted something with some narrative in it. And I, yeah, that's, so... that's, that was one of my uh, first thoughts too. It was like James Tate. I could take the, you know, like that, the one with the goat and the cigarettes and, and you yeah. know, see what happens to the goat after. But uh, <laughs> so which one, uh, which James Tate poem did but you I do? also thought of doing the snowman and then well, that's fine. like, yeah, at the clothesline by James Tate. Um, should I just jump in? Sure, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Millie was in the backyard hanging the laundry. I was watching her from the kitchen window. Why does this give me so much pleasure? Because I love her in a million ways. And because I love the idea of clean laundry, flapping in the wind. It's timeless, a new beginning, a promise of tomorrow. Clothespins. God, I love clothespins. We should stock up on them. Someday they may stop making them. And then what? If I were a painter, I would paint Millie hanging the laundry. That would be a painting that would make you happy and break your heart. You would never know what was in her mind. Big thoughts, little thoughts, no thoughts. Did she see the hawk circling overhead? Did she hate hanging laundry? Was she going to run away with a sailor? the sheets billowing like sails on an ancient skiff, the socks waving goodbye. Millie, oh Millie, do you remember me, the man who traveled with cloth napkins and loved you in the great storm? Uh, yeah, that's a great James Tate poem at the clothesline. And, and here is your sequel. And my sequel, which I called and after, and after and Before. Millie enjoys hanging the laundry. Today's wind tested her. Sheets worn thin enough to tear, stains gaining ground, and Leon watching her from the kitchen window. They love each other, though she's been feeling distant. There's things she doesn't tell him. He does the same. She runs her fingers over the rich silk of all the thoughts she keeps to herself. How she had once yearned to spark the poet in him, to be cradled in his grateful, attentive gaze to find herself in his musing, quirky lines. Be careful. 
being a muse is a sticky ball of rice, steaming fresh and fragrant for a while. Then it's leftover grainy whiteness gone cold, breaking into clumps. Now she longs to be inspired, stirred by the breath of another. Of course, there's the baby on the way. She hasn't told Leon that news. Do they have enough money, enough clothespins, sufficient devotion? Millie lives inside Leon's poem, newly pregnant, hair blowing across her face and into her eyes, holding a clothespin pressed between her lips, dreaming of their baby, the tiny socks she'll pin to the line. She will lie down in the yard swale once Leon's poem is spent, doze beneath the wind, breathe like the ocean, set sail unseen. Uh, that was wonderful. And it, you know, it feels kind of like an ekphrastic poem almost, like an ekphrastic based on the thing in your imagination. It's a really interesting poem. I love that line, being amused as a sticky ball of rice. A very cool poem. Thanks for sharing that, Deb. Well, thank you for the prompt. I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank yeah you. we had a lot of fun with it. There's a, a lot of people on the lines too today. It's going to be fun yeah. to uh, see what everyone's got. And uh, I think the policy... Um, for now, for the open lines, is everybody who uh, is here live will will share their poems. So don't worry that we won't get to you. Um, I don't mind. I don't have anywhere to go. Let's see. Caitlin Buttsbaum is up next. Hey, Caitlin. Hello. Hello. Good to see you. Yep. You as well. It's been a little while since I've been on. It has been a bit. Um, I regret that I came on right as Penny was reading her last poem because I had a an MFA meeting before that and so like I got off of that and I went on to the thing and she read one poem and I was like oh then it's over so I don't know did she read Blue Sky <laughs> she did poem that was published yeah in she did rattle. she didn't rattle so if anybody wants to read uh maybe it's a little long so maybe we should do a summary of it it's it's on rattle.com so people that was from rattle so we have um uh, well, do you want to characterize it and maybe read the haiku, maybe, so it's not too... Um, okay, I can do that, yeah. In the document I sent you, I, I pasted her poem mm-hmm. at the front, because I wrote a haibun, um, like, following that, because it's a series of uh, three haibun, and then I just wrote another one on the end. Um, so, her haiku... And so this was in the um, speculative poetry issue, which I thought was really interesting because I wasn't sure if I liked speculative poetry, but mm-hmm. I read this and I'm like, yeah, I'm good with that. So <laughs> yeah, it was, I was kind of looking back to see that that's one that Penny was in, you know, that she even submitted poems to that, which is, uh, you know, but there is this weird connection between haiku because there's a sci-fi coup um, and, mm-hmm. there's, and there's some overlap between the, the um, science fiction poetry association and the haiku of North America. Um, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, that connection. Yeah, so what I got from this poem is that it was kind of a deterioration of world as we know it as a result of climate change-ish things. Um, And I think the haiku really bring them interesting places, but um, I guess I'll just, I'll read those. So her first one was masquerade party, strangers crowding into a downtown loft. And the next one was shooting star, how briefly its wake marks the dark. And the last one, Moon Colony. Again, the supply ship arrives late. Yeah, I love that last one, too. Really interesting uh, haiku there. That's Blue Sky. If any, if you just Google Penny Harder Blue Sky, or if you go to Rattles, uh, Rattle Issue 38, you'll find that poem pretty easily. Yeah, so let's hear your uh, sequel. 
Yeah, and I will just say that I had no idea what I was going to do when I heard this prompt. I was like, sequel poem? What? I can't possibly follow any great poet. Um, so I just decided, oh, well, Penny Harder is on next week. I'll just see if she has a poem that I can follow in. So that's what I try to do. Great. All right. It's not so much about the delayed gratification of dehydrated ice cream bars, a young woman reasons, but the question of whether enough growth will occur on humanity's second home to sustain it. Even here, now, space is taken for granted. Who knows if there will ever be enough life here to fill it? The young woman looks back at the world, sees the pillar of salt that is her parents' birthplace. She looks out at the planets, wonders if the Mars colony feels any more heat from the sun, remembers blue sky. Black caves to white. God tells the universe to begin again. Oh, that's great. Yeah, an epilogue to Kate, uh, Penny Harder's poem. And I know Penny's watching. She said she was going to pop over on YouTube to watch The Open Lines. So uh, I hope she enjoys that. That's really fun and uh, really cool, cool addition to that poem. I love the haiku, too. Thanks. I don't know if it's too prosy, but like it was a I tried. <laughs> and I like this idea that that kind of things repeat, like it goes through this cycle of decay and then, mm -hmm. you know, starts over. Yeah. So. Yeah. Very cool. Well, thanks for writing that and sharing it, Caitlin. Thanks for having me. Right, that was Caitlin Buxbaum with an epilogue to uh, Blue Sky by Penny Harder. Uh, Nancy Tunnell is next. <clears throat> well, this was fun. Yeah, it, hi, Nancy. It gave me a chance to write a sequel to a poem by one of my favorite poets, Richard Haig. Ah. And uh, he's, it's a shame Dick Westheimer isn't here tonight because he and Dick are friends. Yeah, it's true. And we met Dick when we uh, went to uh, Cincinnati for the haiku conference. So it's kind of all coming around full circle. But we had okay. dinner with him. Interesting guy. Well, this, yeah. this is one of his older poems. Um, it's in his collection called Garden mm -hmm. uh, that was published in 2002. But uh, And I have it. Um, his poem is called Adam Earth. And below the title, it says, Name Carved in a Picnic Table, Eden Park. Cincinnati. And here is his poem. In raw cuneiform, wedged deeply in the green park table, Adam Earth has made his mark. Idling in the sun, I think of him, stranger, man or boy I've never seen, hunched intently, laboring to make his name a part of summer's change and spin. Later, Heat struck to a drowse, I start awake and see him at the table's end stand into the blue-green air, moving in his sudden magic leaves, murmuring a song to light. I see him gathered into clover, like some blunt bee nudging, delving. See him wedged into crevices of bark, folded thinly as a moth's wing, watching me. Adam Earth. I see him moving like the wind's hand, rippling grass, his small voice living in the birds, his presence like a tingling in the air. He broadens, name by name, to every form around me. Finch, elm, hillside, jay, deep soil. Hmm. So my sequel is called After Eden. 
After Eden, I stood in the city's expanse of concrete and glass-walled towers. In a struggle to be present, Adam pushes up through the sidewalk gaps, lingers in the mandated green islands of the parking lots, looms over the occasional rooftop garden to celebrate with the marigolds, coneflowers, and dwarf conifers. The urban landscape is dotted with his random pops of yellow dandelion and white clover, while all around me is the evidence of hydraulics, sprockets, and gears, Adam Earth persist near a willow planted in the city's token oasis, a spot intended to bring softness to a steel high-rise quadrangle. The dangling branches beckon to me. The birds sing a summons, so I stop. I sit on a stone bench, comfortably sharing shade and the respiration cycle, this O2-CO2 exchange we take for granted until the imbalance becomes obvious. Ignoring the sounds of horns, sirens, and motors, I remove my shoes, allow my feet to glide slowly over the soft grass. There is no place here for him to carve his name. So with my finger, I lightly trace Adam Earth on the hard bench, hopeful for the Eden yet to come. Now, that's great. Yeah, excellent use of the sequel. I love that there is no place here for him to carve his name. There's something about the simplicity of that line that has a lot of power. That was after Eden. Thanks for sharing that, Nancy. All right. Welcome. It was Nancy Tunnell with After Eden, after uh, Richard Haig's poem, Adam Earth. Um, Let's see. uh, Nate Jacob is up next. Hey, good evening again. Hey, Nate. Good to see you. Good to be seen. I uh, got a prompt poem for you here. All right. It's prompts all, all around. Right. Yeah. So far, anyway. I uh, I went ahead and wrote, I, I think I all, anytime someone asks me about a poem, it's always William Duffy's farm. <laughs> farm. <laughs> I think it's, uh, I'm, I'm going to find out soon. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and uh, read that. Lying in a hammock at William Duffy's farm in Pine Island, Minnesota. All right, I think I think this is a poem that needs no introduction, right? The you, uh, you know the, the you know the cow, the golden stones of the cows, and then the I have wasted my life at the end. So uh, if you don't know, that's the poem, and I th- I'm sure everyone who listened to this has, has read that one. Should I just read mine then? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, I'll just read mine. Did, did you See, have, if you want to read the other one, oh, I think you could too. It's not long. Oh, I just okay, didn't I'll see it here, so I think I figured you didn't want to. I don't want to test the tolerance level for my voice. <laughs> okay. Well, either way, go ahead. <laughs> All right. James Wright's poem. Over my head, I see the bronze butterfly asleep on the black trunk, blowing like a leaf in green shadow. Down the ravine behind the empty house, the cowbells follow one another into the distances of the afternoon. To my right, in a field of sunlight between two pines, The droppings of last year's horses blaze up into golden stones. I lean back as the evening darkens and comes on. A chicken hawk floats over, looking for a home. I have wasted my life. (laughs) Great last line. That is great. It's one of the famous last lines, you know, of all poetry. Let's see. Let's see what you went with it after after the last line. I'm curious. (laughs) Mine is titled "After Lying in a Hammock at William Duffy's Farm." I was nearly late to my night shift as a line cook in Rochester. (laughs) Behind the greasy spoon, 
I see a family of raccoons drunk again on yesterday's scrapings, wobbling into the alley like misshapen bowling balls. Around the corner behind the barber shop, the newly shorn punks rub one another's scalps under the cone of a single sketching lamplight. From a hundred yards away, beyond the fence around the park I grew up in, the tornado slide rises up, though just barely, its peeling fiberglass glinting in the searchlight pulse. I lean hard into the bend of my push broom as the crows caw out their constant reminder. That sidewalk isn't going to sweep itself. Oh, that was so fun, Nate. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, after lying in a hammock at William Duffy's farm, I was nearly late to my night shift as a line cook in Rochester. One of the great titles, too, speaking of titles as we were earlier in the show. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Thanks for sharing it, Nate. Thanks a lot. Yep. Take care. Uh, Nate Jacobs with the, uh, <laughs> the night shift. I won't read the long title again, but it was a great one. Next, we have Brian O'Sullivan. Hi, Tim. Hey, Brian. How are you tonight? I'm doing great. It's a great interview. These are great poems. This is one of my favorite prompts ever. It's great. Yeah, it's a good one. It definitely is. And so, oh, you've got so a proof. I rock. have, um, yeah, waking proof rock, and I assume probably everyone is everyone knows that, and also it's long, and mm-hmm. I don't want to have to read the whole thing. Uh, <laughs> so I'll just go to mine if it's okay. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Waking proof rock. After we drown. In the room, the mermaids come and go, chatting with Michelangelo, and they say. How well you have re-sculpted him, his skin, but little paler than it was wont to be, his hair a little thicker as he would want it to be. They smile at their own cleverness, I guess, and at their magnanimity that they spare a thought for me. So would it then be worth it, after all, if I sprang up from this coffin from my wreck and boldly dare to say, I am back, unexpected, to tell you all, and I shall tell you all, T.S. and the Baptist, Hamlet and Polonius, and you, yes, you, quiet guests who might have walked with me, doomed companion in my misery. Well, what was I going to say, after all, and what is the question that I might have asked so overwhelmingly, except perhaps, what in the hell was wrong with me? So close, so near, and yet so morose. The question, Al, is not for you to ask you or me to ask me. It's what ails thee? If we'd asked others that, we might have roused the anesthetic skies and rose to be the Fisher King reborn, and we might have bloomed again with everything, with every mustard seed and every grieving home. Instead, a broom handle through a laptop screen, a crack between the proof and the rock, a thesis lost, a bottle of Smirnoffs in a cheap hotel, a sickly smell. It's all ridiculous as hell. And this, I thought, is what you taught me. But it would not be worth it, after all, to tell you thus about yourself if I did not think I'd hear again your voice saying, careful, don't be a fool. When I think of you, I remind myself, be careful not to not be the fool. The fool comes bumbling in but tells the truth, and that's a win. But I can't tell the truth every day in every way, and not that brave. Maybe just a foolish poem here and there. And so it goes, and so it goes. And still we clatter in our caves and slumber. Dreaming with Michelangelo, till Dan's voice wakes me, and we go. <laughs> That's wonderful. I love that. Thanks for sharing it. Uh, waking proof rock, Brian O'Sullivan. Excellent use of the uh, the the form, and getting the sounds of proof rock in there too. Thank you. Yep. Take care. It's Brian O'Sullivan once again. Uh, Tom Barlow is up next. Thanks, Tim. Hey, um, Tom. I wrote a I uh, 
sequel to a poem by Gary Soto called Telephoning God. Oh, I love that it's poem. It's not very long. So yeah. It's okay if I could read it? Yeah, feel free. Telephoning God. Drunk in the kitchen, I ring God and get Wichita. Angela, drunk and on the bed's edge, undoing her bra. Dial again and Topeka comes through like snoring, though no one sleeps. Not little Jennifer yelling, but mommy. Nor Ernie kissing the inside of his wrist, whispering, this is a gorgeous evening. Dial again and the only sound of spoons crashing in a cafeteria in Idaho. A little silence, then a gnat circling the ear of Angela, beaten and naked in the vineyard, her white legs glowing. Mm. So I wrote the sequel, FaceTiming God. All right. After Telephoning God by Gary Soto. 3 a.m., drunk in the backseat of the Greyhound between Cleveland and Memphis, I FaceTime God and get Reykjavik, Gunnar, also drunk on Equivit, changing channels on his television every 30 seconds. FaceTime again, and Abilene comes through in a Cadillac. Henry calling me, call me Kank. Henry, call me Hank, on his way to the Chick-fil-A. Gosh darn slow drivers. Then Fort Myers and Tyler, daughter, hugged to his chest. Mommy didn't mean that. Once more, and only the sound of a fire act repeatedly striking a barn door in Wichita. A little silence, then the steam off an apple, uh, apple pie. Then the sweat pouring off Angela in the kitchen. Scorch marks on her proffered palms. Oh, very fun. Sorry, I think I read a read a different version than put on the. Uh, I was close screen. enough. Yeah, great. I love the uh, the spinning from telephoning to FaceTiming God. Yeah, another really fun one. Thanks for sharing that, Tom. You're welcome. Thank you for yep. the opportunity. Yeah, always a pleasure. It was Tom Barlow once again with FaceTiming God. Um, and uh, let's see, um, Paul Mitchell Bernstein. Hey. Hey, Paul. Good to see you again. Good to see you guys. Um, so I reset the poem with the original, or I don't know if, uh, yeah. so I did a sequel to She Being Brand New by, by E.E. E. Cummings. And I, um, yeah, I ran into the exact problem you talked about. <laughs> uh, I mean, E.E. E. Cummings is a big influence on me anyway. And, and, uh, but I really found myself trying to, you know, I was throwing stuff in parentheses and breaking stuff up weird. And so I, I pulled back. And actually, I originally submitted it via submittable, but I withdrew it twice because I was afraid that it didn't meet the uh, qualification of being a completely original work. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah. And thanks, Katie. This is an awesome prompt, by the way. I do these kind of things a lot, actually. A few weeks ago or something, I you critiqued a poem called uh, Song for Dear Henry, which was... Mm-hmm. Um, which is based on Dream Song Number One by John Berryman. I I do a lot of responses to uh, Berryman's Dream Song. I'm working on a whole series of them. That's cool. But, yeah, it's uh, a great way to get you know get poetry flowing is by you know responding because poetry is really a big dialogue too. So it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean it's stuff that inspires me and touches me. And E.E. Uh, e. Cummings is kind of one of the reasons. He's the first poet I ever read where I was like, wow, this is cool and sexy and <laughs> you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, Anyway, okay, so I'll read the original first. Okay, yeah, go ahead. She being brand new and, you know, consequently a little stiff, 
I was careful of her, and having thoroughly oiled the universal joint, tested my gas, felt of her radiator, made sure her springs were okay. I went right to it, flooded the carburetor, cranked her up, slipped the clutch, and then somehow got into reverse. She kicked, what the hell? Next minute I was back in neutral, tried, and again, slowly, barely nudging my lever right O, and her gears being in A1 shape, passed from low through second in the high like grease lightning. Just as we turned the corner of Divinity Avenue, I touched the accelerator and give her the juice good. What? What? It was the first? Oh, sorry. Yeah, it was Miss. I didn't see it. It was the first ride, and believe I, we was happy to see how nice she acted right up to the last minute. Coming back down by the public gardens, I slammed on the internal expanding and external contracting brakes both at once and brought all of her trembling to a dead standstill. Uh, that, that's great. And I, uh, I've never uh, read that poem before. Somehow they didn't teach that one in school, <laughs> unsurprisingly. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. You can see why. Cummings, you know, he's just so you know mellifluous with his language. It's just so much, so creative. It's always fun. I think he gets a bad rap because of the uh, all the play with the syntax, but the lines are just wonderful. So let's see what your uh, your version of or your sequel is. Okay, so my sequel is called "Still a Little Stiff." It literally the title starts with the last word of uh, of the poem. Still a little stiff, I glanced into her rear view, saw the cherry lights of a black and white, and moments later, incidentally, with she still trembling and bliss, was informed by a slim and blustering young cop about the stoplight back on Divinity Street I'd missed. I assured him I had not. I explained to him, in fact, I was a poet, a man deeply concerned with the details and colors and nature of things, and that she being brand new and still a little stiff had got her accelerator pedal stuck real tight so tight i was unable to stop for the light but that i got it all worked out now and everything was all right and then i just stopped here in the gardens to let her rest for a while the cop being a lean and young new bull all full of cock and swagger with his hand on his heat had mercy and warned me to be more careful on divinity street and in the mirror as i watched him walking away i lit a cigarette for a little bit and sat there thinking about his sway considering his warning and then released her brakes slipped the stick into gear and oh so slow rode her down into the morning <laughs> that was great paul that was a still a little stiff by paul mitchell bernstein and you really did keep the the uh the feel of it while may also making it your own i think good job with that it was a tough thing to do with cummings oh thanks for saying that it it was my own yeah i was afraid that i was just kind of trying to sound like cummings which i probably do yeah a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well i mean that's not a bad thing excellent uh, good good job paul thank you right, take it as paul mitchell bernstein was still a little stiff after the coming she being brand nancy sobanic is next hi tim how are you hi nancy i'm great good to see you oh thank you um so i'm gonna read charles simic's the mystic life Mm -hmm. and it's short okay Uh, it's like fishing in the dark if you ask me our thoughts are the hooks our hearts the raw bait we cast the line over our heads past all faith, past all believing, 
into the starless starless midnight sky until it's lost to sight. The lines long unraveling, rising in our throats like a sigh of a long day's weariness, soul searching and reverie. Our thought, one thought against the supreme, unthinkable. How about that? Looney Tunes, fishing in the dark out of an empty sleeve with a morning band on it, the fly and the spider on the ceiling, looking on, brother. Hmm. Very interesting. Okay. That was The Mystic Life by Charles Simic. Always interesting, Charles' right. poems. <laughs> so I, I had written this a little time back for a Charles Simic contest. Oh, um, mm-hmm. it, mine's more of a response than a sequel. And I wrote a golden shovel using three of the lines from the poem. Huh. So I titled the poem, Our Thoughts Are the Hooks. There was one who fished for men. Our feet follow his hard scrabble way. Our thoughts promise milk and honey but wild goats are elusive. Instead, we find jackals. The scent of our sweat and blood hooks that which is unwholesome. Our fervent desire for a feathered heart to wing us to Canaan, for the calluses formed have torn. Raw and bleeding, we become baked. Though we witness the constant cull, rising is the banquet that draws us in. Better to walk than lie, waiting on our own altar, offering our throats Instead, we lift our redemption song. Like Saw Today, we feel for our last, our lost home. We sing a melody where joy is tinged with a sigh. Oh, excellent ending. Yeah, and great, great images throughout. That was uh, our thoughts are the hooks. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Nancy. Thank you. Yep, that was Nancy Sobelink with uh, our thoughts are the hooks, uh, a golden shovel. And of course, um, if you look at the screen, you can see the uh, simic, our thoughts are the hooks, our heart the raw bait rising in our throats like a sigh down hidden in there as the golden shovel form asks you to thanks for sharing that nancy thanks yeah it's a double uh double duty there doing uh both a golden shovel and a uh a uh a sequel a sequel <laughs> sequel is the word um let's go next to uh, mary lisa de dominicius hey mary lisa Hi. Hi, everybody. <laughs> I agree with Caitlin. This was a difficult prompt, but it was a lot of fun, too. I, I also feel like a little bit of a minimalist uh-huh. <laughs> compared to everybody else tonight. Oh, my goodness. Um, such wonderful responses. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, there have been great um, poems so far. It's fun to read, you know, other poems by, you know, well-known poets who I haven't heard before, too. That's really fun to see what everyone's picking. Yeah, really good. And, um, yeah, it was difficult because... I was like, how do I live up to this? I can't live up to the original poem, you know? So, all right, I'll just, um, I'll read the first one is short and then I'll just go right into mine. Okay. And she'll show it on the screen, right? Yeah, um, go ahead. The Friend by Marge Piercy. We sat across the table. He said, cut off your hands. They are always poking at things. They might touch me. I said, yes. Food grew cold on the table. Food grew cold on the table. He said, burn your body. It is not clean and smells like sex. It rubs my mind sore. I said, yes. I love you, I said. That's very nice, he said. I like to be loved. That makes me happy. Have you cut off your hands yet? No, I said. I stood up to leave. Let's go with plan B. 
I can't cut off both hands with only one hand. I can't fly with only one wing to span my flight. You misunderstand. My body is not a house for your haunting. My heart is not your dinner. I'll starve, he said. That's very nice, I said. I'd like you to starve for a bit so you might know hunger. That would make me happy. Oh, another poem with a, with a strong ending. Thanks for sharing that, uh, Mary Lisa. That was uh, The Friend uh, by Marge Piercy and a sequel to that. Very interesting. Thank you. Yep, thanks. Always a pleasure. Always fun. Yeah, great, yeah. great night. Oh, thanks. Bye. Bye. Yeah, Mary Lisa Didabonicius with uh, that sequel. And uh, next we have Mark Grinier. Hunger. That would make me happy. Oh, another poem. Hey. Hey. Hi, Tim. Hey, Mark. How you doing? I'm doing good. Uh, uh, my uh, sequel is uh, after William Carlos Williams's poem, The Descent, which uh, I don't know whether people know it or not, but it's one of my favorite poems of his. Do you want to describe uh, it a little bit so we can you know, get to know well, where we it, are? It, it's, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll read a few lines of it, maybe, mm-hmm. not the whole thing. It's a little long to put on the, to, to do the whole thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it's, uh, it's, it's a series of lines that first appeared in Patterson, in the, in the long poem Patterson, in which he later published as a complete separate poem hmm. called The Descent. And it begins, The descent beckons as the ascent beckoned. Memory is a kind of accomplishment, a sort of renewal, even an initiation, since the spaces it opens are new, new places inhabited by hordes heretofore unrealized. And it goes on in that vein and talks a little bit about love and things like that. Hmm. And my my uh, sequel is called Homage to Williams in Old Age, and I quote from the poem. After multiple strokes, it seems, the thing itself became the loss of times and press, where descent beckons as the ascent beckoned, where a mountain's rise attempted left the failure to reach that peak, and scaling Parnassus heights made absent memories become a kind of accomplishment. A descent into the deep. <clears throat> Oops, into the deep, darkest ocean depths, where winter's cold retreats from surfaces of sunlight to darkness deeper than night, the depths beneath all light, where mudflats squirm with the evolution of worms, and cold blooded fish compete as predators for prey, becoming prey themselves, as we are also prey to sharks of ancient lineage straight attacking from the depths. Where what was known is forgotten and light no longer reaches however hard we strive for youth, for the sunlight high above us beckoning toward the beach where lust and love defined what once enriched our lives, touch transcending time as we joined our lives together like Bill and Flossie did beginning their time together in a century of pain. We faced this threat ourselves when the Vietnam War interfered with our hopes for peace together, making memories of days when the crash of surf against rocks, instead of raising rainbow praise, broke spray into salty tears that soaked our youthful cheeks, crystallizing disenchantments, reinforced by a dream's defeat, by the return of ancestral prejudice the end of our trust in governments, 
the end of our hopes for peace. So I turn toward damaged victories lost in times inexorable worst, to the strike of a yellowtail taking bait and racing off in the night, killed by a sudden shark attack that left a shredded piece, another dead memory burning through the sting of blowflies distracting me from the years we spent together in America's golden west, reading the little left to ask of this poem's implied conceit. Oh, that was great. Great rhythm in that poem. You can really feel the love for uh, for the the original poem. Um, it, it's really all right there. Thanks for sharing that, Mark. Yeah, it's done in the triadic line that you, Williams used for that poem, which is something I've been doing off and on. Yeah, no, Thanks a lot. Very good, very good interview today. Yeah, she was good. wonderful. Wonderful interview. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, that was Mark Grinier with homage to uh, Williams in old age. Yeah, excellent work. And then uh, let's see, Laura Berg is next in line. Hello. What a wonderful evening. What wonderful poems everybody is creating and sharing. Yeah, definitely. So enjoyable. Um, so I, I picked out Eating Poetry by Mark Strand. Mm-hmm. You think everybody maybe knows it? But it's, it's short. Okay. Ink runs from the corners of my mouth. There is no happiness like mine. I have been eating poetry. And so on and so on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Mm-hmm. So mm, I just made a fun poem called What Poets Eat. Ink still runs from the corners of Mark Strand's mouth. Ah, yes, he's eating his words. Mana, like frost, like dew. And who sits beside him at this banquet? Who hones the knife? Whose fork glistens? Who taps a spoon? Who's first to rip sinews from bone and eat up what we poets serve? Or is this unusual meal composed of us only for us? We banshees, we vampires, we cannibals. Oh, that was a great. Very fun response. Yeah, excellent. What poets eat after the Mark Strand. Thanks so much for sharing that, Laura. It was Laura Berg with What Poets Eat. And uh, next, we will go to um, Bishwajit Mishra. We have three people left on the lines. Hi, Tim. Hey, Bishwajit. How are you doing tonight? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm great. I went with time. We have a lot of people. Okay. <laughs> okay. I sent two, uh, but unless you have a choice, I'll pick one. One is a, a sequel to, what's his name? Uh, Robert Frost, uh, Snowy Evening Poem, Stopping by Woods. And the second one is a after poem uh, to Louis Gluck's, um, what is the Penelope's Stubbornness. Hmm. So it's totally up to you, whichever. I haven't read either of them, so I don't know. Whichever one you prefer. No, no. I I mean, Robert Frost, everybody knows stopping by the woods in an evening, uh, uh, snowy evening. That's uh-huh. a very popular poem. It is probably the so most popular read... poem in the last 200 years, maybe. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> English, yeah. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's one of the first American poets that I consciously picked and read. Oh, that's I, great. We read uh, Wheatman in school. I didn't even remember until recently. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, let's do it. I'm then. going to read uh, Louis Gluck because it's a smaller poem, okay. and, uh, uh, and and she's one of the contemporary poets. And I ever tried. Uh, I mean, I don't understand her poems well. To me, I just made a disclaimer at the beginning. I just tried. <laughs> uh, it, it's very courageous 
Okay, let's hear it. Okay, so the original poem is on the second page of my submission. It's called Penelope's Stubbornness. Uh, Louis Gluck, a bird comes to the window. It's a mistake to think of them as birds. They are so often messengers. That is why once they plummet to the seal, the seat so perfectly steel to mock patience, lifting their heads to sing, poor lady, poor lady. They are three-note warning, later flying like a dark cloud from the seal to the olive grove. But who could send such a wetless being to judge my life? My thoughts are deep and my memory long. Why would I envy such freedom when I have humanity? Those with the smallest hearts have the greatest freedom. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't think I knew that poem. And then with the last line, I remember it. Yeah, <laughs> it's a very it's memorable a, last yeah line. that last line. Uh, uh, yeah. So mine is called, sorry about the number. I missed it. I have it. I don't know. In the submission, you have a number. I'm reading from my copy. Okay. It's called Odysseus Helplessness. After Louis Gluck's Penelope's Stubbornness. You might have had the wrong end of the telescope because all I eat every day is to grow my heart. And it's no mistake that I wear that on my lapel like a red poppy. And freedom is a falcon, tame to sit on my shoulder. Freedom, holding its head high, yells, poor people, poor people. It's two-syllable call for its need to be one and imposed like a thunderbolt issuing from roaring clouds. In the meantime, the little birds can come to your window for me as I go on showing my large heart to all until the last heart on earth for the sake of humanity gives in to my freedom. Oh, that was great. Thanks for sharing that, Bishop. Hey. Odysseus's helplessness and a really cool poem to uh, be writing after and, and really fun. Thanks for sharing it. Thank you. Thank yep. you. Take care. Good night. Yeah. Uh, Bishop, would you once Hi. again? And that's going to wrap up the show. Um, let me go too quick to the uh, Saiku for the week. I had a couple. I wasn't sure what to do. The uh, the Saiku that I wrote originally um, ended up uh, um, in the poem that I wrote. That was where the moon stuff came from. So I thought I'd mix it up and, and do something different just so I don't have the same content. And uh, so I wrote a story about this um, right here. And hang on, let me... Um, okay. So this is from the University of Cambridge, and uh, this is the story right here that we're looking at. This is, uh, healthy lifestyle can help prevent depression. New research may explain why. And if you read this story, um, it turns out that these things are correlated with uh, not having a high risk for depression. Moderate alcohol consumption, healthy diet, regular physical activity, healthy sleep, never smoking, low to moderate sedentary behavior, and frequent social connection. I think I did this last week, but this is another one of those ridiculous science stories because you think, do you think that a healthy diet saves you from depression? Or do you think that like having depression um, makes you not want to eat healthy, not want you to have physical activity, you know, have less social connection? Um, you know, all those things are things that you do when you're depressed. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think they're uh, confusing causation for correlation here. And they do this all the time in articles just for headlines. I don't understand it. And that's from the University of Cambridge. So I don't know. Um, and and those, study, those things always annoy me. And so that's just the truth of it. So I wrote this Saiku based on that. And uh, here's my Saiku. 
right here. Why do the bears get to decide it's trash day? Why do the bears get to decide it's trash day? That is the side coup for this week, and that is the show for this week. Thanks, everybody, for joining me. Now, Katie had to go. Um, you know, she's got to put the kids to bed. So I will reveal next week's prompt. And next week's prompt, which everybody can probably guess, is right here. Write a hyphen that mentions time. So there you go. We read uh, we read Keeping Time by Penny Harder, and it's a book of hyphen. So your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to write a hyphen that mentions time. So that'll be uh, the prompt for next week. And next week's guest of the Rattlecast is going to be Anders Carlson Wee. So Anders' new book, Disease Kings, uh, or Disease of Kings, I should say, is just out. I think it's from Norton. Um, just a wonderful poet. He read with us at the... Um, Wrightwood Arts and Wine Festival this spring, so I got to meet him. You know, of course, famously, he uh, rode the rails and traveled the country that way. He's also a rock climber, all sorts of interesting stuff from Anders, not your typical poet. We'll uh, talk to him and explore his book, Disease of Kings, and we'll write the hymens that mention time. That's going to be next week, Rattlecast number 212, Monday, September 25th, the regular time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Hope to see you there. Hope you have a great week in the meantime, and I will talk to you later. Good night.